Good morning. As we share in the solemn occasion of Memorial Day, to my right, to your left, you'll see a static display that memorializes and honors all of those since the Revolutionary War that have given the ultimate sacrifice for this great nation and for our freedom. We would do well to remember the great and ultimate sacrifice that so many have made for our freedom and our nation. To do that, I would like to share a enumeration of that sacrifice in a way that will help us all fully appreciate the cost of our freedom. Originally known as Decoration Day, Memorial Day honors those who died while serving in war and national defense efforts. Each of the following slides will remind us of the number of Americans that have bought our freedom with their lives. The first slide will begin 100 years ago with World War I, 116,516. World War II, 405,399. Korean conflict, 36,000. 574. Vietnam, 58,220. The Iraq War and the global war on terror that is still going on, 6,959. The final slide shows us all 13 wars and major conflicts major and minor since 1775, 1,190,468. And these numbers come from the Veterans Administration. That final number, again, includes all lives lost in the war effort, including all branches of the military, Coast Guard, and the Merchant Marine, dating back to the Revolutionary War. As we express our gratitude and pay our respects for such a great sacrifice, please stand. Civilians, as you stand, place your right hand over your heart for the playing of the military funeral taps in honor of that sacrifice. Veterans, you may choose to render a hand salute. Remain standing, if you would, as we sing 
three verses of America the Beautiful. Church family, welcome to worship this morning on this beautiful Memorial Day weekend where we do celebrate the freedoms that those that lost their lives, they pay the price for us to have the freedoms to even be here to worship our Lord and Savior this morning. We are glad to be in the house of the Lord where we can do just that this morning. Praise and worship our Father and our Savior. This morning you'll notice um, 
Kevin Bowles is absent because he is with family this weekend celebrating um, the graduation of his son from medical school. And so we are glad that he is able to be there with his family. But in um, filling his shoes today is Cameron Weatherford. And we are thankful, Cameron, for you being here this morning to lead us in worship. Pray with me now as we begin worship time. God, we do thank you for this beautiful day. Where it is a privilege to be in your house to worship you, Father. May we never forget the lives that were, have been lost over the years for our freedom. God, may we not take that for granted. There are men and women, boys and girls all over this globe that do not have the freedoms that we have in the United States to worship you freely. May we not take that for granted, Lord. God, may, we, may you usher us into worship now at this time, Lord God. May we sing praises to you, Father. May you be honored and glorified. May we take to heart and put into action the things that Stuart will uh, preach about here in a little while. Lord God, may we be obedient to follow you in everything that you tell us to do and say for us to do, God. We love you. We thank you for all that you do for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for that, that wonderful tribute this morning. We sing and serve a, uh, a God who is faithful over all war. Amen. And he is sovereign over all that. And we get to celebrate that this weekend and say that he is faithful. Why don't we stand together as we begin uh, singing worship this morning. Let's sing this together. Give thanks. Give thanks to the Lord, our God and King. His love endures forever. For he is good, he is above all. Forever here, let's sing. Forever, God, 
We stand amazed. Help us as we go through this weekend, remembering those that gave their all for our freedom, our freedom to worship, our freedom to live, and our freedom to speak. Help us to honor them and protect that freedom that they died for. Help us to fight for these freedoms, both from without and within. Now be with us today, on this day, as we worship you, as we learn your word, as we reverently follow the guidance that you gave us. Bless us now, and let our love for you be reflected in our gifts. In Christ's name, amen.
Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you today knowing, Lord, that we have met with you. And our prayer, Lord, is that you would lead us. Lord, our prayer is that you would draw us closer to you. And I pray that as we sang that, that was all of ours intense prayer, God, that you'd draw us close. You'd never let us go. That despite of anything else that could be going on in our mind at that moment, that that was our prayer, Lord, grabbing hold of you and wanting nothing more. And Lord, as we encounter your word this morning, Lord, write it upon our hearts. Help us to know how to follow you better. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever known what God wanted you to do, but you didn't know when God wanted you to do it? Maybe you knew God wanted you to take another step, but you didn't know when he wanted you to do it. Maybe that step was to take a new job or to marry someone or to begin school or to pursue a calling or to make an expansion in your business or even your family. You knew what God wanted you to do, but you didn't know when God wanted you to do it. This morning, I, I found that our text suggests a question. How do you know when the right time is the right time? For God's timing is important. And so we're going to explore that question and the answer today. Our text is John chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, as we continue this series in the Gospel of John. And we find that after the feeding of the 5,000, and then Jesus is instructing the people at the synagogue about the bread being the bread of life, as he was there in Capernaum, many people deserted Jesus. And despite his diminished following, though, Jesus remained in Galilee for quite some time, teaching and ministering to the few people that were still listening to him and still following him. In fact, it appears that Jesus remained in Galilee for about six months. And here we pick up in verse 1. After this, after the feeding of the 5,000, after the discourse on the bread of life, after people deserting him, Jesus went around in Galilee purposefully staying away from Judea because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. There may have been several reasons Jesus stayed in Galilee, but a major reason stated here is that the religious leaders in Jerusalem were waiting to take Jesus' life. They had marked Jesus. And Jesus wasn't wanting to walk into their death trap any too soon. Verse 2. But when the Jewish feast of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, You ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. When the Feast of Tabernacles came, Jesus' brothers told him, you need to go to Jerusalem and get your PR campaign going. 
Let the Jews visiting the festival see what you can do. Let them see some miracles. Let them hear your teaching. Now, an immediate question that comes up is who were these brothers? We know from context that these brothers can't mean spiritual brothers because they don't believe. So the only alternative left is that these were Jesus' siblings, his brothers, his half-brothers, likely those named by Matthew in his gospel in Matthew 13, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Now, while the Roman Catholic Church teaches that Mary was a perpetual virgin, the biblical record simply does not support that claim. According to the Bible, Mary and Joseph, after Jesus was born, obviously had their own children. And these brothers here are taunting their brother a bit. It's hard to believe that Joseph and Simon and Judas and James could live with Jesus for so long and not believe. I mean, really, no doubt they knew of his miracles. I'm sure they had watched them. I'm sure they had heard some of his teaching and surely they had heard their parents share about the story of his birth. You know, the angels, the shepherds, a couple years later, the wise men. Now, Mary and Joseph may have tried to guard their other children from feeling inferior to Jesus, but surely the brothers knew who and what he was. I mean, they had the closest contact to him as anybody. They had the best opportunity to watch him and observe him and test him, and yet they were still unbelievers. No doubt the brothers suffered from PWH syndrome, prophet without honor syndrome. As Jesus would say, a prophet is without honor in his hometown and in his own home. But you know what? Such unbelief had actually been prophesied. If we look back at Psalm 69, verse 8, the psalmist writes, I am a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my own mother's sons. The brothers did not believe. They would not believe for some time. However, after the resurrection, Jesus' brothers are listed among his followers. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, we read that his brothers with the other disciples and with their mother Mary are all in the upper room praying. And then further, Jesus appears to his brother James, a fact that we learn about later on in the New Testament. Eventually, the brothers believe, but here at this point, they do not. So they're a bit sarcastic with Jesus. They can't understand if Jesus is something so special, why doesn't he go to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles and throw his weight around a little bit? You see, the Feast of Tabernacles was a big deal for the Jews. It was a harvest festival celebration that happened in the fall, and uh, originally, it was a seven-day feast, but during the time of Nehemiah, it had been expanded to an eight-day feast, and the festival commemorated that time of the wilderness wanderings and God's faithfulness to his people during that time, in that period of 40 years after the exodus from Egypt and before they went into the Holy Land. During that time, Israel lived in tents or 
tabernacles just as God lived in a tent or tabernacle there as the worship center. During this festival, people would actually construct and live in little crudely constructed booths or tabernacles or huts as a memorial to their ancestors. And they'd build these on the rooftops of their houses on the flat roofs, or they'd build them out in the streets or in alleyways or out on the countryside if they were traveling. And so the people commemorated this special time, and the spirit of the festival was a lot like our Thanksgiving. So if you get that kind of feel in mind. And because Tabernacles was one of three festivals within pe- which people within 15 miles or 20 miles or so of Jerusalem were required to travel back into the city to celebrate, and there were, there were a lot of people packed in at the time. It was also one of those festivals when, kind of like Memorial Day, a lot of people traveled anyway to see family and see what was going on. And so there would be a lot of people there in Jerusalem. And Jesus' brothers thought that the festival would provide the perfect time for him to do some miracles, tell some stories, and regain his following. If he expected to get ahead with his work, he needed to go to the heart of things instead of staying in the comparatively unimportant area of Galilee. He was staying in the shadows when he should have been in the spotlights. One commentator estimates it had been 18 months since Jesus had been to Jerusalem. To the brothers, that was too long. Jesus needed to go back. You see, many people believe that when Messiah came, he would make himself publicly known in some kind of spectacular way. There was one rabbinic tradition that said that when Messiah would come, he would go to Jerusalem, stand on the top of the holy place, and announce to the Israelites, the time of your redemption has arrived, and everybody would flock to him. But there was another school of thought that suggested that when he came, he would do so unobtrusively and unexpectedly, and he would be unnoticed except by those who had eyes to see. Of course, the latter would prove to be right, But always before Jesus was the temptation to give them the old razzle-dazzle, like lawyer Billy Flynn in Broadway, Chicago. Go to the top of the temple and jump off. Give them the old razzle-dazzle. Turn these stones into bread. Give them the old razzle-dazzle. It was the temptation of the enemy against Jesus As Jesus began his ministry and the temptation was always there and now his own brothers are dangling it out before them. Just go to Jerusalem and give them the old razzle-dazzle, razzle-dazzle. But Jesus wouldn't have any of that. In fact, look at his reaction in verse 6. Jesus told them, the right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. The the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. You go to the feast. I'm not yet going up to this feast because for me, the right time has not yet come. Having said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the feast, he went also, not publicly, 
but in secret. Guys, you can go to Jerusalem whenever you want. There are no consequences for you, and there's no calling for you. But the right time for me has not yet come. Jesus lived on a divine timetable that was marked out by the Heavenly Father. His birth even happened in the fullness of time, as Paul says in Galatians 4.4. Consequently, Jesus frequently spoke of his time and his hour. But what's interesting here in this gospel, he says this kind of thing several times in even this gospel. But here, at this particular point... Jesus uses a different word than he uses anywhere else. It's the only time he uses this word to speak of his hour. And when you see that kind of thing in Scripture, normally it's important. In the other passage, the word that Jesus or John uses is one that means the destined hour of God. Such a time was not movable or avoidable. It had to be accepted without alteration. It was the specific time. But in this passage, the word that Jesus uses or John uses here to bring out the idea is the word kairos, which characteristically means an opportunity, the best time to do something, the moment when the circumstances are all just so. In fact, it's the same word Paul uses in Galatians 4.4 when he says, in the fullness of time, Jesus came. Jesus is not saying here that the destined hour of God has not come, but something much simpler. He's saying that that was not the moment which would give him the chance for which he was waiting. The term is often used to talk about the harvest season, when things are ready to be harvested, when they are ripe. And ready to pick. And so we might think of Jesus as saying, the time to reveal himself is still too green. The time is not ripe yet. His time would come and then he would go, but not until then. For everyone else, one time was as good as another. But for Jesus, only the right time was the right time. Now we see in verse 10 that Jesus does end up going to Jerusalem, but he does so kind of undercover. And there's going to be some pretty cool stuff we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks because of him going to the Feast of Tabernacles. But I want to stop right here today because as I was reading through the text and laying out my sermon plan some time ago, I couldn't get past Jesus' statement that he says twice, the right time for me has not yet come. As I pondered that, I realized that we all have times in life where we need to move according to God's plan at the right time, at the right kairos, when the circumstances are right and when God is leading us. So I want us to explore a question suggested by the text, and that is, how do you know when the right time is the right time? We want to do God's will in his timing, but how in the world do you know when it's the right time? How do you know when your hour has come? This is different than knowing God's will. Because sometimes we 
know God's will. We know what he wants us to do, maybe even where he wants us to do it, and even how he wants to do it. What we don't know is when he wants us to do it. How do you know when the right time is the right time? One thing is clear. The Bible documents God's leading of his people. He led the nation of Israel by day uh, and uh, by, by, with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Exodus 13 says this, And the Lord went, literally the word is walked, before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. It's the kind of stuff the people at Tabernacles were celebrating. And wouldn't life be a whole lot easier if all you had to do was look outside and go, oh, the cloud's going that way and it's moving today. Let's go. Then we would know what we're supposed to do, when we're supposed to do it, and we could just be right there in the will of God. But we don't have the pillars. It's clear from our passage and a host of others that Jesus, though he didn't have pillars of cloud and fire, he had the Father and the Spirit guiding him. So we expect Jesus to know the right time. But the New Testament also records that the early church was led by God. And they too knew when to move and when to act and when to hold back and when to move forward. So if the Old Testament people knew when to act, and if Jesus knew when to act, and if the early church knew when to go, how do we know when the right time is the right time? The simple, honest answer is, it can be difficult to know when the right time is the right time. However, there are several ways you can ready yourself to be sensitive to God's timing as well as several principles to keep in mind. And so you can know when the right time is the right time first by spending time listening to God. How do you spend time listening to God? Well, by prayer and Bible study. Knowing when the right time is the right time begins right there. It's as basic as that. Uh, a lot of Christians do not pray or read their Bibles as they should. It's really quite a travesty that we are so lackadaisical in our faith. But then many of us, even those of us who pray and study God's Word a lot, spend far more time talking to God or talking about God than we do listening to God. Our world has taught us to fill every moment with noise. But we need to listen to God through his word and prayer. The Bible contains guidance for protection. It contains guidance for growing stronger in the faith. It provides insights that can make us wise. The book is chocked full of what we need to get to know God and to listen to his voice and for him to unleash his personal direction in our lives. If we'll study and meditate on his word daily, his timing will become clear to us. Psalm 119, 130, that great gigantically long psalm that celebrates God's word. Psalm 119, 130 declares, the unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. 
I like it when the Bible says it helps the simple because they're like, hey, that's me. Simple. Psalm 119, 133 adds, direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. So when you read God's word, don't let your eyes just go over the page, but reflect. Stop, pause, ask God, what are you saying here? Allow him the space to speak. Get beyond the, oh, this was happening historically and that was happening historically. That's all important, but that's to inform your understanding of what God's saying. Listen to what he is saying. And when you do, those words will be written upon your heart and he will be able then to bring them to your mind when he needs to give you a word when the time is right. But likewise, when we pray, We need to have moments where we just listen. Looking back at my own prayer life, I know that the richest times of prayer have come when I earnestly sought God's voice and I heard it, not because I was talking, but because I was listening. When I needed a word from God and I said, God, I am listening. I am, I'm staying put until I hear that word. And one of the blessings of my childhood was a season when my home church really invested in our children's choir. And we performed several musicals during that time. And one of the musicals was called Listen to God. And the theme song of that little musical said, listen, listen to God. Listen, you are his child. Listen, you'll hear his voice. Listen, listen to God. God. I bet the song said, listen 50 times in the space of two minutes. But you know what? That was a good lesson. Listen to God. If you want to know when the right time is the right time, spend time listening to God. One reason Jesus knew the timing of God was because he knew the word of God and he had regular conference calls with the heavenly father. Think about how many times in the Gospels Jesus drew away to pray, often for extended periods of time. When was the last time you did that? You can know when the right time is the right time by waiting, by by listening to God. But you can also know the right time is the right time by waiting on God. Yoda would say, patience you must have. Patience you must have. We've been introducing our oldest son, Zach, to the Star Wars movie, so Yoda quotes are kind of at the forefront of my mind right now. Do or do not, there is no try. But you can know the right time is the right time by waiting on God. Patience. You must have. Never act with haste. Spend time listening to God and wait. God's timing is usually discovered through patience. Your mind and heart need to hear the confirmation of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 40 verse 31 tells us that those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. When we wait on God, we are not passive, and neither is God passive. 
Waiting on God is not a time to sit back and twiddle our thumbs. I'm just waiting on God or to surf the internet. I'm just waiting on God. No, it is a time of preparation. God grows us in the time of waiting. He teaches us in the time of waiting. He draws us closer to him in the time of waiting. Waiting on God is like winding up a toy. It's like stretching back a bow. In the waiting, God prepares to launch us in his way upon his trajectory. We've got to learn to wait on God. Never fear the waiting. Never hate the waiting. Embrace the waiting. Trust God to move and to guide in his time according to his will. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. You know, Jesus had to wait. Jesus had to wait. Did you ever think about the fact that Jesus was 30 before his ministry ever began? He knew his mission from the beginning. I mean, that's evident from his teaching in the temple as a child. But he had to wait. And in the waiting, he was wound up. He was stretched. And he was prepared. Then, when the time was right... You can know when the time is right, when the right time is the right time by waiting on God. Third, you can know when the right time is the right time by being sensitive to the cues from the Holy Spirit. God has such interesting ways of guiding us along the path he has laid out for us. If we spend time listening to God and we're patient to wait on him, he can then give us cues from the Holy Spirit that gently nudge us when it's time to step out and confirm for us when we do. The Holy Spirit uses a variety of things to cue us. He'll use God's word. He'll use another person. He'll, he'll give a sense in our spirit or even our circumstances can cue us to God's timing. The Holy Spirit clearly Cued the early church. Romans 8, 14 states, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. As many as are led. To each of the seven churches in Revelation, Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Spirit was teaching, guiding, directing. God used circumstances. Reflecting his perfect timing to communicate his will. That's why Paul, as he starts the letter to Ephesians, could boldly affirm that his timely imprisonment was according to Christ's design for his life. Jesus, too, was cued by the Spirit. Read through the Gospels and you'll see the Spirit led him into the wilderness after his baptism in Matthew 4. The Spirit cued him to what people were thinking in their hearts in Mark chapter 2. The Spirit moved him to go to certain places and perform certain actions in Luke chapter 2. And it empowered him for the ministry at hand in Luke chapter 4. The Spirit cued Jesus. When you're trying to determine when the right time is the right time, look for cues from the Holy Spirit. They may be subtle. They may be unmistakable. But they will come. They will be there. You can know the right time is the right time by spending time listening to God, by waiting on God, and by being sensitive 
to the cues from the Holy Spirit. During my second semester of seminary, I participated in a revival practicum where I took a class on leading revivals and then was assigned to a place to preach uh, during spring break of that year. And it was an exciting opportunity to share the gospel, see another part of the country. And as a bonus, the seminary paid your expenses to get to wherever you were going and you got to keep whatever honorarium the church gave you. And that's a big hookup for a young seminarian. Well, our professor, Dr. Dan Crawford, was the one to make the location assignments. And, and we knew the different places we could go. He had shared those with us as the class began. And so we all had our places we want to go. And finally, Dr. Crawford walked into class one day and he said, okay, guys, it, I have the, it's time for me to begin the assignment process. And I do this the same way every year. What I do is I, I have no idea how long it's going to take. I may have it by the next time we meet. It may take me a couple of weeks, but I'm going to go into a time of prayer and fasting and reading God's word until I get a go word. And then when I get a go word, I'm going to sit down and make all the assignments. Well, in a week or two, I don't remember how long it was. It was, it was a period of time. Dr. Crawford walked into class and he said, I have the assignments. And this was the go word. And he turned his Bible to a particular passage that God had led him to. He read that to us. And man, I was excited. Where would I get to go? I, I was praying for Oregon. There was, mom had been a, a college summer missionary to Oregon. She talked about it for years. I'd never been to Oregon. And, you know, it's Texas in the springtime. I'm thinking I want to go somewhere north, somewhere cool. That's also cool. And Oregon was like, man, I was praying for Oregon, or I'd settle for Colorado, or there was New York, really neat places to go. And so I was so excited, and the, the spreadsheet started going around the class, and, and I got mine, and I was so excited that I, I scanned down the name till I find mine, and I, I went across Kansas. <laughs> Kansas? I could pray for a tornado and be taken to Oz, but not Kansas. <sighs> I was kind of bummed about that assignment, but okay, Dr. Crawford prayed and fasted over this, so I guess it's the right place. I hadn't fasted over Oregon. I just wanted to go there. Well, no doubt, that experience was great. And I had a wonderful time there. I, uh, God moved in our services in two little churches I got to preach in that week. And I never will forget one older man weeping as I preached. And God really moved in his life that week. It was a wonderful time. And no doubt that experience was so great because I was where I was supposed to be. Because Dr. Crawford spent time listening to God, waiting on God, and then being sensitive to the cues of the Holy Spirit. And to this day, all these years later, I'm glad he did because I ended up in Kansas. What time are you waiting to hear from God? Would you submit it to him today and, and be willing to take the time to listen, to wait, and be sensitive? He will answer at the right time for the right time, so that you'll be able to move in the right time. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray you would take these words and apply them to our hearts. 
I don't know what, some may be dealing with a question today about when to move according to your time. And I pray that today they would find these simple truths to try to walk with you. Lord, I pray that you would apply this message to all of us as we seek to live our daily lives growing in you and and being led by you. Lord, help us to apply these principles, not just to the big shifts and questions of life, but to the daily decisions of life. For Lord, you guide us in the small things as well as the big things. Write these words upon our hearts today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, we're going to give you an opportunity to uh, respond.